You're listening to episode 28, Healthcare Design for Healthcare Equity and Burnout Prevention with Dr. Hina Santry. Come join me June 20th at 6 p.m. Central Time for Navigating an Important Meeting and Information on the Latest Boss Group Coaching, Everything is a Negotiation. Find more information at BossSurgery.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. I have a really special guest here. This is Dr. Hina Santry. She's very well known in the surgery world. So Dr. Santry, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me on the uh, Business of Surgery podcast. I'm super excited to be here. And one of the reasons is, is that I'm still an active practicing surgeon, but I recently made a career pivot that, you know, for people that don't know me, but have heard about me sort of, uh, they may not know um, everything that's going on, but I'm still an active practicing surgeon. And, and my identity is truly connected to that calling to be a surgeon. I am uh, someone who emerged from a like long career in academic surgery. I finished medical school wanting to be an academic surgeon, knowing I'd take two years off to study the structural and psychosocial factors that affect outcomes in surgery, and then uh, choosing a research career pathway that um, involved uh, two academic jobs in a row, where uh, a lot of the leadership work that I was doing was um, in the areas of, of leadership around building research programs. There were two guiding principles in my career as an academic surgeon that attracted me to surgery. And one was the idea of creating a just culture within our profession. And I came upon that idea because when I was a medical student looking at a career in surgery, I asked a a white male attending surgeon for a letter of recommendation and was told that someone like me would never match in surgery. And what I didn't know is if it was because I wanted to study the structural and psychosocial factors that affect outcomes in surgery at a time when most people did basic science research, or if it was because I was a woman, or if it because because I was a brown person, like I didn't know. But that was the day that I clearly set out as an anthropology major, so I had some understanding of culture in my undergraduate training, I set out to become a leader in the house of surgery to be an agent for culture change in the profession so that we could look at different kinds of people as all being worthy of being surgeons, different kinds of interests as still being compatible with good surgical decision-making, good technical skills, et cetera. And then the other aspect of it was the, the research goal. And the research goal was focused on health equity, and uh, looking at the different structural and psychosocial barriers that affect people and their access to care and their experiences of care, understanding that a more diverse workplace will allow for um, better outcomes across a, a spectrum of different kinds of patients. 
That's great. And before we go into your career transition, I do want to talk about your very successful surgery career. Um, I know that you were uh, on the editorial boards of multiple different journals. And, you know, what would, advice would you give to someone who's interested in getting a research and getting onto these editorial boards and reviewing papers and, you know, really contributing to research? What advice would you give them? I do have some uh, appointments to some editorial boards. I did have to uh, turn one down or uh, resign from one when I made my recent career change. Honestly, in the world that we're in, the best way to get one of these positions is to do the work. So when you are asked to give a review, only commit to it if you have the time to, to do a good review and then spend the time. And it's not a lot of time, but it's not a 15 minute process, right? Take an hour, take an hour and a half, read through, give constructive criticism, even if it's a manuscript that you hate, even if it's something that you think should never be published in that given journal, take the time to give the kind of feedback that will at least allow the authors to strengthen it for their next iteration, wherever that happens to be. And uh, think about giving um, advice, not only in um, sort of big picture concepts and methods, but pepper in a little bit of like, oh, this word structure was a little bit confusing. It might be made better by doing this. Um, and that's a way of, of showing that you really paid attention, right? Like that you didn't just read the abstract and sort of dislike the main concept and give advice on that main concept. When I was invited to participate in editorial boards, what I was told by the editors who reached out to me, and it's always been lovely, like they'll call you personally on your, on your like cell phone and ask you to be a part of the board. Every single person said to me, You've given such thoughtful reviews before. We think, you know, you would be good at, um, you know, an associate editor position. Oh, that's really fantastic advice too. Of you really just with the focus of making that author and that that paper better. And I know a lot of people hesitate to do these things because we sometimes forget what our worth is, what our expertise is. And but anyone can be thoughtful and use their expertise. Now, I know you followed the perfect trajectory of an academic surgeon. And a lot of people are in your footsteps or, or where you were before. And it sounds like in your career, you reached a point where you're saying, okay, I see the path that I was supposed to go, but I decided that this actually a different opportunity showed itself. How did that work? What would advice you give the person who's along that path and really starting to wonder if this is the path for them? What were your thoughts and, and what did you do? Yeah. Well, I already alluded to those those main two goals in my academic career, right? So culture change was one, and then um, advancing health equity was the other. And so as I sort of was on that sort of very standard academic trajectory, right? Like on average, most people end up moving um, every five to seven years, and it's you know a, a small leadership position that might be internal or an associate something, something. And then, you know, you may or may not become a division chief. And then, you know, if you've checked all those boxes, you can, you'll get recruited to chair jobs, right? So as I was on that trajectory, and I thought about the impact that any given leader of a department of surgery can have on those two goals, of course, as a leader, you can impact the culture of your department, right? And of course, as a leader, you can help make decisions with the health system that will impact access to care, quality of care in that area where you um, are providing care for patients, right? So your, your geographic region. And as I thought about that, I wondered if there was a way to use my training and skills as a leader, use my 
experience as an acute care surgeon and my uh, many health services research skills, right? Because I used qualitative research, I used epidemiologic skills, I did survey research, and I did some geographic information systems. So I really had like a whole armamentarium of, you know, sort of looking at healthcare in different ways. Is there a way for me to bring that together in a way that has more reach than a single department and more reach than just the people who I was studying in the sense that I was a researcher at the point of my career when I was thinking about this of emergency general surgery. So any impact I would have on a broader scale outside of my local area would be on emergency general surgery patients. And that was only if the grant got funded and the research got done and then it was disseminated and then someone read it and thought it was a great idea right? So many steps in so many years. And so I started looking at, you know, different ways in which I could have that kind of um, outcome, but on a broader scale. And so I found myself in healthcare design, where the uh, architectural firm that I joined has a whole um, division or group that uses all of those skills I described to help health systems think about, um, how to best organize themselves to achieve their population health goals, to advance health equity um, uh, in their regions. That's in all over the country um, uh, and um, other parts of the world. It's a, a multinational firm, as well as you know, looking at population, uh, you know, epidemiologic data on the kinds of diseases that the local population suffers from, trends in aging, to think about what kinds of services to offer in um, uh, different hospitals and, you know, things about proximity to other hospitals, um, as well as does a lot of operational work, right? So when we think about efficient, high quality, equitable care, uh, my team uh, at NBBJ works on helping people think about how they use their space in a high quality, operationally efficient space. And so I get to work on projects now that are related to behavioral health, that are related to labor and delivery and care around the peripartum period as well as emergency care, surgical care, critical care, which were all spaces that I worked in. At a population health level, you know, I've, you know, been to rural Alaska working with, you know, critical access hospitals and helping think about their future. And I've been to, you know, cities um, and, uh, you know, thinking about sort of like the the next generation of um, state of the art for, you know, large coronary care centers. In your experience, where are the biggest problems that you see? Like what are the biggest flaws in some of the health systems that you've seen that you would suggest overcoming? So there's an infinite set of possibilities to really, really improve operational efficiency and workplace wellness. And I think a lot of times we miss on those and what happens, especially surgeons, what we do is we, you know, figure out how to band-aid something, right? Like if something's not working well, we come up with a workaround um, because that's more quick and efficient than sort of thinking through the steps that need to be taken in order to make that process actually work the way it, you know, it needs to work. Now, any operational process, for example, OR turnaround time between cases, right? Any operational process is made up a number of factors, right? So there's the built environment, which is what an architectural firm works on. And then there is um, the the processes and how the processes around, you know, um, 
getting patients out of the OR, getting things turned over, getting instruments to the OR, you know, how those are set up. And then there's the people, right? So it involves the, you know, uh, sterile supply team. It involves the nursing team. It involves the surgical tech team, anesthesia, um, pre-op, post-op, all of these different, you know, areas where different people work. And so, um, there are a lot of opportunities that um, will increase operational efficiency. Just again, for example, in terms of OR turnaround, that has to do with, you know, having a, a sterile core and the right layout for storage of equipment that you need present versus not. How you co-locate SPD, sterile processing department, to to surgery and when SPD works, right? So a lot of organizations are actually doing central um, sterile processing departments and finding that they are more efficient even though there's some travel time uh, bringing sterile labeled carts to uh, various different, you know, if the system has two ambulatory surgery centers, a community hospital and a quaternary hospital, but they're all within a small geographic area, there might be economies of scale that you can get from a financial perspective, but also from a sort of standardization of equipments and those kinds of things. And that way, when you float staff from one location to another, it's not sort of reinventing the wheel every single time, right? So there's various different ways that you can approach it. And in terms of OR design, you know, flexibility is critically important. I went to a hospital recently where like there was a, you know, cystoscopy bed that was just sort of fixed in the middle of the room, which is a high cost, you know, thing to change and move if you've, you know, recently invested in, you know, a renovation or something like that. So what kind of equipment can we put in a room that allows for flexibility on a day-to-day basis when there's ebbs and flows of, of what's needed? Or for example, like during COVID, when you needed to make your OR into an ICU, as well as, you know, in the future, there's going to be technologies, you know, will they have bigger footprints? Will they have smaller footprints, what kind of medical gases will they need, those kinds of things, you know, and also things sort of like that you wouldn't think about that are so beneficial. So should the circulating nurses back be, because we have to document everything in the EMR, should the circulating nurses back be to the team and the OR, the patient, because the computer is wall mounted, or should they have a pivotable table that allows them to be you know, documenting things, but also have a full view of what's going on at the OR table. That's a small architectural detail that from a quality and safety standpoint and from like a team building standpoint, go really far. Excellent things that you're bringing up because, you know, a lot of times we just sit there in the lounge and going, why is everything taking so long? (laughs) Yeah. And I really like, it's all these little design things and really, you know, having a surgeon who's been there and knows what's going on and helping with the design is so important. And it's also important for us to understand where we can be improving in our own system. I mean, I think that we as surgeons are all leaders and that if we don't like the turnover time, rather than just sitting there thinking, oh, I have no control over any of this, of really starting to understand the processes, especially as we start elevating in our own departments. Um, and being a participant in as these ORs expand and things like that too. Um, I mean, that's how we really help our systems is to, to be engaged and understand where some of the challenges are. Yeah. And, you know, people talk a lot about um, burnout and moral injury and, you know, death by a thousand clicks and all of those things. Right. So instead of feeling oppressed by how the day went because turnover was so bad, like even if we, you know, have a, 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 you know, all of our design processes are matched with some kind of sort of operational planning, right? So we don't just create pretty spaces, but we want to create functional and efficient spaces. And that is always done with clinician input, boots on the ground people input, right? It's just that we bring 
clinicians to other clinicians and we can have like a, you know, a, a conversation about what might work. Cause at any institution, what might work at institution A might be a little bit different at institution B, but when you put this lens on it, then you also do a lot because someone leaves work that day, having had a smooth turnover, they end up having, they end up having a, um, a better day at work. And they experience less sort of bitterness and drain from the day at work, right? Leading into that too, you know, I know that um, part of your design and your your forward thinking is about the physician lounge too. Um, And I think that really that was the best way where you kind of incorporated all of your strengths and, and your experience into, you know, the design of that and your thought process. So tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on the physician lounge. Right. So I think I said to you earlier, I feel very strongly about physicians lounges. Um, And, uh, you know, I've been at my firm for a short period of time, uh, but I've been able to look at the work in the past that has incorporated different kinds of wellness spaces and bases for respite for healthcare workers and how um, important that can be. So I have long felt that, you know, a physician's lounge would serve multiple purposes, including that topic of turnover times, right? Because when you get into the blame game, well, it was the anesthesia's fault. No, it was the circulating nurse or no, the instruments didn't come up on time or, you know, why is there not a scope ready? Like, you know, all of those kinds of things, right? It's a, again, it's a combination of the built environment and processes, but when you have an organic chance in between cases to sit with your peers and your colleagues in an environment that is focusing on your wellness, right? So natural light is critically important to the well-being of all people. And as healthcare workers, surgeons in particular, we're really deprived of light, right? We are often in spaces that don't have a lot of daylighting. Operating rooms typically don't you know, um, have a lot of light. Uh, Many of the places where we see patients don't have windows either, right? So a lot of clinic rooms don't have windows. If you have a a busy 30 patient clinic, you may not see daylight all day kind of thing. So to have a place that is looking at uh, uh, providing food for fuel, looking at providing comfortable and a variety of options for comfort, right? So what you might think is great, like a Barca lounger may not be what someone else thinks is right. So having a variety of different places to sort of sit, sit alone, sit with other people, but having that be in a shared space where surgery and anesthesia and orthopedics and you know ophthalmology and all of these people organically come together, it really does provide opportunities for what I like to call kinship and to break down some of the barriers that tend to exist in the workplace where you know we all come in with our set of biases about you know our peers and uh, really kind of dismantling those biases. It also of course contributes to operational efficiency, right? So if you as a surgeon, whatever field you're in, don't have to run back to your office or run down to like, you know, the cafeteria, et cetera, to grab your food and sit and eat and have a comfortable place to eat, then you'll be closer to the OR when that turnaround happens. Right. So um, I, I really, really strongly believe in um, the lounges, both for the purpose of respite and recharge, as well as for culture change. Yeah. And I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think you know, we talked a little bit about this as well Is like, I think one of the biggest dangers um, for us as surgeons is isolation and, you know, having a, a place where you can talk with other people and, you know, share experiences and learn more about each other. Um, it really helps. Um, in fact, even just today, I was um, overhearing a conversation between a general surgeon and orthopedic surgeon talking about, you know, kind of the frustrations of being um, consulted for stuff that, you know, whatever, and, and like hearing them kind of vent 
I really was kind of encouraged by that too, because I think a lot of times we hold it in and, you know, we build resentment or, or frustration or wonder if it, is it just us um, yeah. but overhearing that conversation and having the ability to kind of approach a situation you feel like you can't really control. And then having someone who's, you know, somewhat of a like mind and reflecting back and say, you know, kind of that internal, like, you're not crazy. It is weird. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, having to share these conversations just um, helps us individually, but I think it helps as an organization uh, to really feel like we're being heard. And, you know, kind of going back to your initial experience of the person who says like, you wouldn't be accepted in surgery, you know, they're, they're isolated in their own um, limited view of the world. Um, right. So as we expand our view um, of our colleagues, then I think that we'll start to dispel some of these stereotypes and myths about who can and can't do things. Yeah. And we've come a long way, right? Like that was 22 years ago. Um, and so, yeah, 22 years ago, it's, we've definitely, definitely come a long way since then in terms of how diverse our profession is. Right. So it's definitely something that, um, has, has come far because I think, uh, collectively everyone has done the work of like thinking about the future in an, at least the people that I've, I've worked with, you know, across a number of professional organizations, like, you know, doing the hard work of like looking internally and then looking outward and like, just, you know, seeing the, the best way to provide compassionate, empathic care, high quality care should not be exclusionary. Right. At the same time, there's catching up to do. Right. And so, you know, we still have a um, disproportionate number of, of minority individuals and women in the profession of surgery, right? And um, that feeling of isolationism can definitely add to all of the other strains and stresses of being an active practicing surgeon. And, and as much as the, um, the uh, surgeon's lounge can um, offer an opportunity to connect and engage and not necessarily have it be around like a work project, right? And whether that project is like a, a thought project or a paper or a grant or a patient that you're taking care of together, right? Just again, organic opportunities to connect. One of the things that has come up that didn't exist early in my career, right? Like, all, like you know, 22 years ago, there was no Facebook. There was no, you know, there were no other ways to, to, to connect with people. People weren't making, podcasts weren't a thing, right? Like you couldn't listen to something like this and find relatable content. And so one of the things that emerged, it had to have been about early in my career, 2012, 2013, I um, uh, would often get phone calls from people who um, were, uh, the bosses, so typically um, older men who had fem young female faculty, and they would find me through various other sort of act activities that I was participating in um, and ask me if I could have a phone call or a face-to-face -face meeting if there was geographic proximity, but can you talk to so-and-so? She really feels lost and she's the only woman in our department and it would be wonderful for her to get a chance to meet someone like you because I was a woman, I was a surgeon, I had kids at the time, I had two kids during residency and it just happened over and over and over again. And then when I would go to these larger meetings, um, you know, I remember like, for example, this was at the Association of Women Surgeons meeting, like someone came to me and said, I've never met another woman trauma surgeon before. And I remember thinking, wow, like I know dozens, right? And then at other forums, uh, there was a couple of American College of Surgeons meeting I was like, I don't have any women surgeons in my life who are moms. Right. And again, I was like, oh, 
I have dozens of friends who are surgeons and moms. Now, interestingly, I had most made most of those friends through my, my volunteer work in the American College of Surgeons, right? So um, you asked earlier about how you can get, you know, active and involved in terms of editorial boards. Well, I would say the same advice for um, professional societies, whether it's your specialty society or the American College of Surgeons, there's so many opportunities to get involved and be active. And when you join a community surrounding a topic that you're passionate about, so it could be quality and safety, it could be diversity, um, equity and inclusion, it could be, you know, uh, women in medicine, any number of things. But if you get in or minimally invasive surgery, whatever it is, if you get involved around a subject you're passionate about, work hard, produce the end product that advances the vision and mission of the organization, you'll have opportunities to then, you know, rise to leadership within that organization, just like being on an editorial board. But I had met many, many women surgeons who happen to be wonderful moms through those kinds of volunteer roles in professional societies. And so one day I sat down and I created a, a virtual social network of, you know, 50 women that I knew in real life personally knew, um, who were women surgeons and were, you know, doing that careful juggle, um, between, um, kids and, uh, being a surgeon. And at the time I was writing a blog that was utterly focused on having young kids being a busy surgeon and how do you fit in like self-care? Like, how do you exercise? How do you like whatever your hobbies are, write your grants and show up to work and do all of these things. Oh, and have feelings about like the issues of the day, whether it was, you know, reproductive rights or gun violence or any of those kinds of things, right? Like there's this amalgam of who you are and it can all get swallowed up by your career as a surgeon. And sort of how do you find time to sort of address all of those things? And so I created this virtual social group at the time when I was sort of as an individual blogging about some of those things. And that was about 50 people or so. And there's 3000 members now in that virtual network. And in fact, that's how we met. That's right. And, you know, just to share how important that was for me, I am the only female general surgeon in this community hospital. And having come here, you know, initially, you know, came from academic center where we're in the, and in the military, small community. And, and then all of a sudden I was by myself and then having complications or a difficult case or not exactly sure what to do, having the ability to kind of tap into all of these people that felt like a, uh, a warm and welcoming and, and supportive environment um, really helped me with isolation. And I didn't even realize that's what the problem was of feeling isolated until I was able to say, oh, thank goodness, there's someone else out there that understands me that can help me. And what I've seen in the group um, over time is like my family members are in this hospital. I really need help. And then you have this vast network of people saying, I've got you, let's do this. Or yeah. I've got this really difficult thing. What would you do? Um, and then there's also the venting and, and venting is really kind of a really important aspect of life. And it's, it's how I describe it as approaching something that you can't control, a trauma that you can't control and healing a little bit at a time um, yeah. but in a supportive area. And so that, um, that group, I think has helped so many people in countless ways. And it's not just venting about work, right? Like it might be about other things that, you know, again, are, are part of who we are, whether it's about teenage sons or, you know, spousal stuff, you know, we've helped many a woman get through a tough divorce and all of those kinds of things, right? Women who we've never met before. I know that there's, a, you know, a, a couple of women who sort of look back at that group, be like, wow, like you opened my eyes to the very toxic work situation that I have. I changed jobs and I'm so grateful, right? So there's been a lot of, a lot of outcomes from there. And, you know, I've always seen myself um, as, you know, a mentor, a sponsor, and 
a coach, right? Like trying to just sort of help people through their best and authentic self, right? And it might be different than mine, um, but bringing people the opportunity to be that person in a way that allows them to really thrive and grow, whether it's personal interest, professional interest, and kind of the overlap and gray area between all of those things. And, and in that group, we all function as peer sponsors, peer mentors, and peer coaches, you know, and on any given day in any given post in that group, it might be a different thing that the people that are responding are doing. But really, I think that's what's happening. Like there are multiple little like mini moments of, you know, mentoring might be saying, well, this is how I would do this if it's a difficult case, right? Sponsoring might be like, oh, I heard about this great program, or um, of course, I'd be happy to write your letter of, you know, arm's distance letter of, of, recommendation for your promotion to associate professor, you know, and then, and then coaching might just be like, look, I've got this like really difficult conversation coming up with hospital administration. Like, what can I do to, you know, get through it? So I think we provide that on an ongoing routine basis. And that was all stuff that I was getting from my, those women surgeon friends that I alluded to all those years before I started this group. And that was something that I was striving to give as much as possible to the people who were asking me to give that, um, you know, just to, to be a helper in those ways. And so it's been, it's been um, an interesting evolution to see that it can happen in a virtual space, um, understanding that there are dangers, right? Like in a virtual space that, you know, anything is theoretically discoverable and, um, you know, you can't always assume that, you know, everyone in any given group, especially as it grows to a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people, that they all have sort of, you know, an altruistic reason for being there and that, you know, jealousy won't erupt or, you know, other other things might might not erupt. And so the same kinds of emotions that can interfere with relationships in real life can happen in virtual spaces, but in virtual spaces, it's, it's hard. There's, there's no body language there. There's no, you know, it's, it's harder to pick up on it. And so you always have to be mindful of that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's a really excellent reminder of like the, the benefits of social media and the downfalls too, is that, you know, and discoverable, especially too, the idea of HIPAA and the problems and things like that too, is, is having safe places to vent, but also finding ways to make sure that you're not putting yourself at risk either. Um, right. And it's always, you know, fine line that a lot of people have to, to walk. And I think that you actually had a post a long time ago about this, about, you know, we grow up in an academic center that's by design. That's how we're, you know, how we go through our training is through all these supportive environments, but a majority of people are not working in these academic um, environments. And then they interact with the rest of the world, you know, by being able to see all the things and be able to find, you know, groups that you fit in with um, are helpful. And I completely agree with your description of those two, like the mentors, I've done it before. Let me show you how the sponsor is. I've done it before here. Let me help you do it. And then yeah. the, co the coach is like, have you thought about looking at it a different way? And they kind of pushing you a little bit beyond your comfort level. Um, but in a way that's true and unique to you, to the individual, you know, not like I did it this way. You should do it this way. You know, just saying like, what, what do you want to do? What's getting in your way? Let me help you get out of your way and offering a different way to look at the, at the world. Um, yeah. so I thought that was a really good description. Yeah. Um, and obviously those things should happen more in real life in a longitudinal way. Like, I don't want to say that like the, um, virtual version of it can replace the sort of real life longitudinal, you know, relationships that you develop with mentors, sponsors, and, and coaches. And people have always said to me, you need different mentors for different things. Right. So like, um, this does provide an opportunity for that. And I do know that there are some people, um, who have 
started by meeting virtually in that space and then have become friends, like have like stopped in, at each other's homes, you know, going through town. In fact, I was on a work trip in Alaska not too long ago and um, had a blind date, so to speak, with another member of that group because I, you know, didn't want to eat dinner alone and was just a really wonderful, wonderful time. And I made a new real life friend. Right. So. That happened to me recently too, actually. I, I was um, on my way to a trip to San Antonio. I had just talked to someone who was getting out of the military. And of course I was in the military and she had reached out to me on Facebook. She's like, oh, I know that you got out of the military. I need some help. And so we talked on the phone and then I saw a post like a day or two later that she lived where I was going. And I was like, well, this is just dumb. Why don't I see you in person? And so I, yeah. I met her in person. We chatted for like three hours and then, you know, we've kind of collaborated since then. So it, it really does just expose you to the fact that there's like so much help all around and not just in the virtual space, the virtual space may be a place to find them. Um, yeah. but, but really you can, you can get these real life connections, um, through that as well. Yeah. I mean, a number of years ago, I was uh, presenting at the American Public Health Association, and the presentation was in the morning of November 1st. And so I missed trick-or-treating with my kids. And I love Halloween. Like, it's my favorite thing. I was so sad. I always asked not to be on call on Halloween. And so there was a woman surgeon who I, who I, who I knew because we were in the same specialty, but I wouldn't say that we were like super close friends at the time. But I posted about this and was invited to go trick-or-treating with her family. Oh, and because she lived in that city and we have been such good friends ever since, you know? Um, uh, and so it's really, it's funny how those kinds of things, uh, you know, work themselves out as well. And, you know, I think that there's a really nice way to kind of wrap up all of this here too. And I think your journey is going to be so important um, for a lot of people listening to this too. The fact that, you know, early on in your career, you had someone who said, oh, you, you don't fit in here. And then you clearly said, oh, yeah, I do. And then you're like, mm-hmm. not only do I, I'm going to bring everybody along and I'm going to create these systems and not just me fitting into this world, but I'm going to make the world to where it fits in everyone. Um, and then really, you know, you are living daily, your diversity, equity, and inclusion lifestyle, showing people what's possible. And, you know, what a great example that you are. And I think that's why you resonate with so many people. Mm, well, thank you. I appreciate uh, being here and talking with you about the things that really sort of make me want to jump out of bed every day and, and keep doing the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Not just jump out of bed. Everyone wants to follow you too. (laughs) (laughs) What is next for you? What should we be looking out for on the horizon for what you're doing next? Well, so I've been with my firm now. It'll be a year in July. My focus for the next few years is going to be to become more and more engaged with the various different projects that we have here uh, so that I can, you know, bring back to my surgical colleagues, you know, more, more data, more evidence based on my own experience, not just things that I know from the firm, but based on my own experience and sort of, you know, creating the hospital of the future in a way that um, allows for empathy in a way that allows for equity. I love being in a firm that really chooses that as a value. We design for life is the motto of the firm. And so they think about health, wellness, equity in their commercial projects, as well as in their healthcare projects, in their civic projects, as well as with their healthcare projects. And so uh, as a part of the healthcare team, I'm just really excited to continue thinking about how we can provide ever more um, empathic and cultural, uh, culturally humble places to provide care. Yeah, what a fantastic uh, mission that you have. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how all this uh, works out in real life. It's really fantastic for all of us. Yeah. Well, thank you. Everything is a negotiation. Group coaching starts June 29th. Find more information at bossurgery.com and register for Navigating an Important Meeting on June 20th at 6 p.m. Central. Again, information is found at bossurgery.com.
Thanks for listening. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on in the Boss Business of Surgery series, then make sure to check out bosssurgery.com.